Part 2. To Love Him. Chapter 5. Love for our Heavenly Father may come easily to anyone who feels loved by Him. For some, however, the idea of loving the Creator of the universe raises more difficulties. These we must consider as honestly as we can. According to Jesus, the most important of the commandments is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But what exactly does that mean? And is it really possible? How can I love someone I've never seen or heard? How can I love someone who's infinite and everywhere? How can I love someone who's already busy with seven billion other people? Then other issues may come to trouble us. How can I love a God who allows so much suffering in the world? How can I love one who stands by when the innocent are hurt and the weak oppressed? How can we love a God who's not answering our prayers for peace on earth or even peace in our own family? These are important questions. But our first concern is to work out what we mean by love. There's much talk of love in our world and much striving to love God in our churches. But what does love mean? Is it a feeling? Is it a duty? Is it something that comes and goes? Can we control it? Can we increase it? Is it something that only happens to emotional people? Love is a word used to describe many different things. Parental love warms the heart as we pick up a newborn baby or play with a cheerful toddler. Romantic love stirs our hormones when we meet an attractive person of the opposite sex. Compassionate love moves us to carry a bag for an old lady or to help someone who's fallen in the street. We even say we love a particular piece of music or type of chocolate or item of clothing. We think we know what love is. Yet love for God does not fit into any of these familiar categories. Yahweh is an invisible spirit. And if I'm honest, I cannot easily imagine how to love an invisible spirit. I can love my wife. I can love my children. I can love my friends. I can even love my enemies. But to love an invisible spirit seems quite beyond me unless I have some special help. Then again, love may not always be what it seems. Every day on our TV screens, people in strange clothes sing about love, describing passionate thrills and heartbreaks when they do not mean a word of it, and gaining both fame and wealth in the process. In every film there has to be at least one steamy scene of physical passion. Love has become a public performance, a commercial product, a form of entertainment, 
and for many people, love is little more than that. In church, too, we may sometimes sing about love. But for most of us, this is not natural. It's not normal human behaviour. True love between a man and a woman, or between friends, or between a mother and her baby, is not normally sung into a microphone and amplified. It's not printed in a book or projected on a wall. Genuine heartfelt love is spoken quietly, sincerely, and very privately. There may be profound emotion, but it's not for public display. If we ever tell others about it, we'll speak of it shyly and hesitantly, because real love is a very private thing. We do not boast about it. The meaning of love is further complicated by our modern culture and its grotesque obsession with sex. Love for Jesus, expressed by female singers and worship leaders, can sometimes seem romantic or, frankly, erotic. Intrusive homosexual agendas in politics and in the media can bring an awkwardness when a man speaks of his love for the man Christ Jesus. Childhood memories of an angry or uncaring father may make it hard for some to express any positive feeling for a heavenly father. All this tends towards confusion and anxiety in our efforts to love the Lord our God. We're left with questions. Can a man have a healthy manly love for Jesus, his teacher and friend? Can a woman have a healthy womanly love for her spiritual elder brother? Can we all have a healthy childlike love for our Heavenly Father? And if so, how can we deepen and express this love and make it a genuine part of our personal faith? All this we'll consider. But first, there are some more urgent and basic hindrances to clear away. It will be much easier for me to love the Lord my God if I can be absolutely certain that he loves me. We each need assurance of this, and not one of us can take his love for granted. The issue of alienation and compatibility arises once again. If I have caused offence to him in any way, love becomes much more difficult. Before we can live happily together, I must be assured that all is well between us. If not, a relationship of trust will remain elusive and unfulfilled. Tension between me and my Heavenly Father may go back to a disappointment, a resentment, a moral lapse, an unhealthy obsession or simply a routine of Christian duty that has stifled the wonder and the joy. I may have made a bad choice that cast a shadow on my life, or mixed with people who led me seriously astray. Or I may have started grumbling and complaining and making myself thoroughly disagreeable to him. If so, there's some preliminary work to be done before I can even think of loving the Lord my God or enjoying his love for me.
In his youth, David was known to be a man after God's own heart. He prayed and sang to Yahweh while guarding the flocks of sheep. But after he became king, David lay with another man's wife. Then he murdered her husband. At first, he pretended he'd done no harm. But the words of a faithful friend helped David to see himself for what he was. Then he felt ashamed and unclean, wretched and contemptible in the sight of his maker. He'd done something terribly wrong and now could do nothing to put it right. Have mercy on me, O Elohim, he cried, according to your steadfast love. Create in me a clean heart, O Elohim, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Bitterly aware of his weakness and his need, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he begged, and strengthen me with a willing spirit. Many others have faced a crisis of this sort. If you've wronged someone or caused offence to the eternal God, deal with it quickly before the wound festers and poisons your spiritual life forever. Give back what you've taken. Mend what you've broken. Apologise for what you've said. Put right what you've done wrong as far as you possibly can. Turn to the Lord your God. Kneel before him and confess. Weep if you must. Plead with him to forgive and cleanse and restore you. Then remember that Jesus was nailed to the cross in your place so you could walk free. Here, then, is the first and greatest hindrance to love, my own selfish stupidity. But then the astonishing experience of being forgiven and welcomed back may awaken for the very first time a love for my Lord that remains with me all my life. For others, the hindrance to love may be far less dramatic. Perhaps you've simply become caught up with issues that complicated your life, deadened your spiritual awareness and led you away from the Lord your God. They may have been good and worthy causes. Social concerns, the environment, political or economic programmes or particular doctrines of importance in the church. Or it might have been something more selfish, the passion for success, wealth, power or excitement. Anything that takes over your life will become a tyrant, driving and controlling you as a master drives a slave. It can destroy your marriage, your family and your friendships. It can ruin your health and bring you to an early grave. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. But other, more noble causes may just as easily narrow your spiritual horizon, change your personality 
and deaden your ability to love. Jesus once sent a message to a church more interested in hating what was wrong than loving what was right. Unless they changed their priorities, he warned them, their church would have its light put out. Before long, it was indeed left in darkness. If you've become a person driven by an agenda that has enslaved or embittered you, it's time to rethink your agenda before it's too late. But that may not be your case at all. You may have been trying for many years, with humility and genuine compassion, to serve the Lord your God. You're simply worn down by routines of Christian service, weary with the duties and obligations of a busy programme in church or mission, a committed member but no longer a healthy or a happy one. You might sympathise with one overworked pastor who suffered a breakdown and then admitted, I was a bit surprised to discover that God had been, in many ways, a stranger to me. Maybe that's why it's so hard for some of us to trust God in a crisis. We're forced to commit ourselves to someone we don't know very well. Those are the words of a well-meaning but very weary man. To feel any love for God in your present condition may seem a forlorn hope. The problem, however, is neither with you nor with him, but with the circumstances that entangle you. It's time, perhaps, to reassess your commitments and discover what's truly important. Or simply take a holiday in a quiet place and let your heart and mind regain their equilibrium. That's not even wisdom, but merely common sense. To believe in the invisible God is easier for most people than to love him. We're familiar with the idea of believing in things we can't see. We believe in electricity and in gravity. We believe in proteins and vitamins, atoms and molecules, simply because others have told us about them. But we don't normally love the things we believe in, and they do not expect us to love them, because naturally none of them claims to be a person. But the invisible spirit, whom we call Yahweh, is different. We're supposed to believe in him and also to love him. In normal family relationships and friendships, love can be expressed in various ways. We'll show love for one another with positive words of affirmation, with time spent doing things together, with thoughtful and appropriate gifts, by helping in practical tasks, and by warm and affectionate physical contact. But applying these ways of expressing love to our relationship with the eternal Elohim becomes difficult, if not impossible, and for one simple reason. Love between parents, children, husbands, wives, friends and strangers is communicated first of all with the eyes and the tone of voice and, of course, with a friendly smile. 
we pick up the subtle signals that people are warmly disposed and interested in us. We read the body language. We sense the love they have for us. And this makes it easy to respond with love. Everything else is secondary. Words, time, gifts, help, touch will all be meaningless if there's no twinkle in the eye and no tenderness in the voice. On these terms, when we seek God's love, we have a problem. For we can't see his welcoming smile or hear his cheerful greeting. There's no handshake or hug. With Yahweh, we lack the basic means of sensing and receiving love that we depend on every day of our lives in our relations with other people. There's no body language. There are no signals to pick up. This distressing lack of signals may trigger a desperate search for some kind of response from heaven, simply as proof that God loves us. It sometimes brings a craving for emotional ecstasies, prophetic affirmations, miraculous gifts or physical manifestations. Manipulation and delusion may easily follow. But if this danger is foreseen and avoided, how can we genuinely experience his love for us? And how can we express love for him? If we can't see him, hear him or touch him, how can we really love him? The answer is found in Jesus. In the streets of Jerusalem and the fields of Galilee, people picked up the human signals. They could see the welcome in his smile, hear the gentleness of his voice, observe the play of emotion in his eyes, feel the positive warmth of his hand and the compassionate strength of his arm. They could read his sensitive body language. They knew exactly what he felt and where they stood with him. We can be certain of this because they've told us about it. John recalled how much Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Peter observed his reaction to the words of an earnest young man. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Others noticed the tears he wept for a friend who had died. See how he loved him. Every day, Jesus showed his affection for them all. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he said. Live always in my love. The same quality of affection would be seen in those who followed him. By this, he said, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then finally, they watched him lay down his life for them all. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Before Jesus came among them, the disciples had the same problem that we have with the invisibility of God. No one has ever seen God, they admitted. But then, to their great relief, the only Son born from the heart of the Father, he has made him known. 
One of them begged him, Show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. To which Jesus replied, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In the very visible Jesus they could see the image of the invisible God. They could see what God is like. Now, if anyone had dared suggest to those men and women that God was cruel or unloving or impassive or aloof, they would utterly deny such a strange idea. In Jesus they'd seen his true nature, and Jesus was by far the most loving and caring person they'd ever met. At times he spoke very boldly, at times he felt very deeply, he was grieved, he wept, he rejoiced. With a strong and positive touch he laid his hands on the sick and blessed the little children. He showed them the love of God, not as a mystical dream, but as a way of life, a strong, bold, positive love in action. And how did the disciples respond to this love? One said, I will follow you wherever you go. One declared, I will lay down my life for you. Another urged, Let us go too, that we may die with him. Love flowed constantly between Jesus and his friends. They could see the honest face of love. They could hear the sincere voice of love. And their response was evident in the intensity of their loyalty to him. Having seen and heard, they could never doubt his love for them. And loving him, their greatest desire was to be worthy of his love. But how does all this help us today? To start with, it shows how easily and naturally love kindles love. That was true then as it is now. The disciples, like us, found it much easier to love the warm-hearted human Jesus than the invisible spiritual Yahweh. Understanding this, Jesus simply told them, Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father. How greatly privileged were those disciples, the friends of Jesus! And how deeply we may regret that we don't live in that land and in those days. If only we could see and hear Jesus himself, we'd surely love him and learn to love his heavenly Father as he did. But we live in a different time and place, with our own troubles and concerns, and we do not have him here to help us. This became a problem almost immediately for the early Christians. Peter wrote to a new generation in a distant land who'd heard about Jesus and accepted what they heard. He carefully reassured them, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy too great and glorious for words. A little later, he encouraged them again, addressing a second letter to those who have received the same precious faith that we have ourselves. Unlike Peter, 
they had not lived with Jesus for three years. Yet Peter saw no difference between his faith and theirs. They did not need to see Jesus in order to love him. They did not need to hear his voice in order to believe in him and rejoice with a joy that ran too deep for words. Our own experience shows how we can love someone without seeing them or even knowing where they are. A husband or wife travelling far from home will be loved just as dearly as if they were here in our own living room. Absence is even said to make the heart grow fonder. A lack of physical contact or visual presence need not diminish love or weaken our fondness, loyalty and affection. And yet, you may say, we have at some time seen and heard and embraced our family and closest friends. Even Jesus was once seen and heard by the people around him and they felt his touch. We can imagine what it was like for them to love Jesus. But for us, he's just a character in a book. We've never seen his smile or heard his voice or felt his warm embrace. This might seem a great handicap to love. And yet there are characters in books we have never met, but who've engaged our interest and sympathy, our admiration and affection. We love them dearly, although we've never seen their face or heard their voice. At times we cannot bear to put the book down, we're so concerned to find out if they're still safe and well. And if they should chance to die, we may mourn their death for days. Yet they may be entirely fictional, with no real existence at all. This shows us something very curious about ourselves. We are able to love someone we cannot see or hear. We can love someone we've never seen or heard. We can even love someone who's imaginary. If that is so, there's no reason why we should not feel a genuine attachment and warmth towards the real living person whose name is Yahweh, revealed to mankind in Jesus Christ. And he's certainly not just a character in a book. He's present with us now, wherever we may be. If your faith is in him, then his spirit is in you. The Bible says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He becomes your closest friend, and you may feel his presence every waking moment of the day. We'll speak more of this.